0: The year is 2015, and you will witness me, blood bag! The movie, Mad Max Fury Road.
1: everybody and welcome to Un-spooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson
0: and I am Paul Shear and this is the show where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. We started on the AFI Top 100 list and now we are working our way through different genres trying to find films that represent all the best types of cinema, trying to find one film that represents one genre perfectly trying to not duplicate directors so we could have a really rich tapestry of amazing film that we will eventually shoot into outer space. And you can hear how this list is progressing in, um, in about a week as Amy and I sit down to look over our last year of films. We have spent the last year picking our own films, having you pick our films, and we have watched a lot of movies. And now it's time for us to make some strong, hard judgments. Which ones are going to space? Right now, we have 40. We have 60 slots open. I imagine we're not going to probably put more than eight or 10 on, right? Oh,
1: and it's tough because we've been watching almost exclusively bangers. Yeah. I mean, there has not been, you know, a a Ben-Hur or French connection in the mix. So this will be tough.
0: It's going to be really interesting. And we are going to continue this Experiment uh, into the new year, into September, which we already are in, but uh, just kind of start Halloween early. As our next series is horror, we are going back to horror. So many people were so upset that last year we only did a very brief horror series. Well, we told you we're coming back, and we're going to come back, and we'll talk about those films uh, next week on the podcast, which you have to look forward to to kind of create a a, a scaretober. Do they call it scaretober? I don't think so. A fright fest? We're going to do a fright fest. What are we going to do?
1: Are we going to do a fright fest? Why don't we try to start Scaretober? Ah, right. Scare-tober, Scaretober. September or September? Yeah, October? we could start it, it
0: early? early. We who knows I, what time you know, is anymore? We I don't know. Is it Halloween? Is it Christmas? Is it summer? I'm All I know this. is that I'm pretty much in my house.
1: I think Scaretober is from, let's say, September 21st to November 9th.
0: That works perfectly for this show, then. I love it. <laughs> Scaretober it is, Amy. Scaretober. We're going to get into it. Um, loving the reactions that everyone's having on the Discord about Inception. Um, a lot of debate. I think there's a lot of love for this idea that you and I uh, are going to eventually get into our Spielberg debate. Is there a world without a Spielberg? So uh, stay tuned for that. Um,
1: and by the way, before we get too into the weeds on this week's movie, you know that last week when we were doing Inception, I could not... Stop saying the name Dom Cobb because mm-hmm. I think it's just so funny that, that uh, that you know, Christopher Nolan, who names characters things like Maul, i.e. bad, or Ariadne from mythology, names his lead character Dom Cobb, a name that I cannot say without laughing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to give a shout out to Julius Costier who uh, writes and says, you know, on the name converse- controversy, Dom Cobb sounds like Dom Cobb which is Dutch for dumbhead. And somebody else who speaks German says, yeah, doom cough. It means like stupid. So maybe Christopher Nolan is calling that character stupid. I mean, Christopher Nolan's too smart to be doing anything else, right?
0: Well, I mean, Wow. All right. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. I, I thought we, you know, we also explored where that name could come from as well in the podcast, but I, I'm going to go with Dump Cuff. Um, There's a lot of people online, too, on our Discord that have a lot of different theories about it. People said they didn't see the addiction side that I talked about, but then other people said that they saw that he was making a movie about making movies. So that actually ties into what we were talking about like this idea of like can you continue to make stuff and, and be interesting. Um there's also a, a great idea that this whole movie is about retirement and Dom is being sent out to pasture and that uh this whole thing is a dream which I there's a lot of reasons and there's a, that we can get caught in the weeds of that like just uh what ifs. But um But yeah, let's
1: not get caught in the weeds. Let's go to a place where there's nothing but sand.
0: Ooh, All right. I love this. And speaking of nothing but sand, did you see this tweet that someone sent to us this week? Actually, Luke Beard, uh, who is Luke's Beard on Twitter, showed that uh, Lloyd's of London is auctioning off uh, a lot of the cars from Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, this is pretty impressive. I mean, should we go in and buy one of these cars?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're auctioning like real deal. Like the Doof Wagon is up for rent. Like Not rent, Warwick. buy. You get not to rent, have buy. it. Buy. Yeah. yeah, not rent, own, 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 own. You can buy the Doof Wagon? Who's going to buy the Doof Wagon? What are they going to do you with it? You can buy the
0: War Rig, the, the full giant one the Furiosa drives. You can buy that, the tanker and everything with the ball pig attached to it. Paul,
1: what if we blew all the money we've made making this podcast? We bought the war rig and we pivoted to
0: opening up a food truck. I mean, if someone wants to get behind this idea, Amy, I'm so into us making some sort of a barbecue restaurant out of the body of the war pig. And by the way, why is it oh, like you? Uni- a
1: grilled cheese place. Toast oh, the knowing. Yes. Toast the knowing.
0: I love that. And by the way, um, I think it might be really cool. If uh, if someone wants to sponsor this uh, and make us make us uh, food truck mavens to have these all over the the country and the world, but I'm so surprised that someone like uh, Universal Studios isn't buying these just to have on like a back lot. Uh, they're so cool looking.
1: I know they're so cool. I'm really surprised that they're not you know being like sheltered and taken care of. Yeah, but they're one of a kind works. Like those are priceless.
0: Do you have to get it here? Like do you like like is it like do you have to figure out the transport, I guess, is my uh, my question.
1: Oh, yeah. Where are they? Are they still in Nam- I, Namibia? I,
0: they might be. They might be. Well, we'll find out. I mean, we're, we're going to get into it. Um, well,
1: I've always wanted to go to Namibia.
0: So that, this is maybe our chance. This is our chance to do it. Also, just a reminder, we are doing a few more screen tests. So if you'd like to be a contestant, you can also sign up on our Discord, discord.gg uh, slash Paul If you've never signed up for Discord, it's totally free. It takes 30 seconds to do. Uh, and it's a great community of uh, unspooled lovers. There's also an incredible community on our Facebook page uh, that is being run by some amazing listeners of the show. So we thank you. Uh, come wherever you'd like to come. And do it uh, with us. And, and you know what? The one thing I'm going to say, Amy, and I'm not to make this all about plugs, but uh, if you have ideas for t shirts, we want them because we have a T Public store that's sitting there just uh, not being used. I mean, we just sold a Godfather shirt. The other day, but I feel like we haven't made a shirt in a long time. So if you have any ideas for shirts, we want to hear them. And if you are tech savvy, and by tech savvy I mean can you build a, a Wikipedia page? If you can, uh, just a reminder: we are looking for someone to help build our uh, unspooled Wikipedia. For whatever reason, uh, some people have been shutting down our page. You can Google why. Uh, I won't get into it here, but uh, we can help you out in any which way you can, uh, because we'd love to have this uh, show represented on there, so you can see all the episodes that we've done, especially as we've we've just kind of been cranking away. We've really done so many great films.
1: We have. And I think Crank is a nice way of getting in Mm. the verbiage of our next film.
2: Let's unspool it.
0: The year is 2015. For the first time in four decades, the U.S. middle class becomes the minority as inequality on both ends of the wealth spectrum swells. Gun violence in the States is growing and Americans are now just as likely to die because of guns as they are due to car accidents. A 21-year-old white supremacist opens fire on a church in Charleston, killing nine black Americans in a targeted attack. The Supreme Court determines that the state bans on same-sex marriage are unconstitutional. And the U.N. Climate Change Summit commits all countries to reduce carbon emissions for the first time. What a year. Yikes. Uh, Hot movies are Jurassic World. Star Wars Episode 7, The Force Awakens, Avengers, Age of Ultron, and today's film, Mad Max Fury Road. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Lay it on the line.
1: Mad Max Fury Road. This is the fourth Mad Max film, written and directed by its creator, George Miller. Um, The first three Mad Max films, they came out in 1979, 1981, and 1985. That is Mad Max, Mad Max Road Warrior, and Beyond the Thunderdome, respectively. And yes, Thunderdome coming out in 1985 means there is a 30-year gap between the third sequel and the fourth sequel, which was not at all George Miller's intention. He tried to start filming Fury Road in 2001, 2003, 2010... He was thwarted each time for reasons that we're going to get into. Basically, we're saying that Fury Road boasts a complicated production history and a very complicated production itself, just technically for what is in essence a simple story. You know, this is a brutal post-apocalypse. There's a warlord named Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe has seized control of water and all women. And when his war rig driver Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, steals his biggest car and his five abused wives, Joe and his war boys and their various cronies, and a staggering number of completely insane and demented cars with like quills and exploding spears and guitar players and men on giant poles, they all give chase. And that is it. That is it for plot. And that is all the plot that Furio needs. Take a listen. That creepy
2: place with all the crows. The soil. We had to get out. We had no water. And the water was filth. It was poisoned. It was sour. And then the crows came... We couldn't grow anything. Where are the others? What others? The many mothers. We're the only ones left.
1: Mad Max Fury Road was released on May 15th, 2015. And I would say, Paul, that it hurts me like a spear to the face to say that Fury Road was actually not a hit. It cost $154 million to make, and it made $154 million a year at home. and it Yeah, and it made about another $200 million abroad, but that all means that it lost money. Uh, However, it did win six Oscars, plus another four nominations for Best Director and Best Picture. And I will give you a second, actually, uh, to try to remember what won Best Picture instead of Fury Road.
0: Oh my gosh. All right, so this is the year... 2015, my God, this is where I'm really bad and at the
1: 2016
0: stuff. 2016 Oscars. Okay, it's 2016 Oscars. Oh my gosh, this is like, I mean, I want to say like, yay hey, yay. Hey, hey. uh, okay, I mean, okay, all right, hold on. <laughs> <Okay>. now, <laughs> you're really going for I, it. Okay. I, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try I to was figure it out. Being rhetorical, but please oh, okay. answer the question. No, I know. I'm like now. Uh, <laughs> now I'm kind of. Uh, I'm curious because I feel like this is the year where. Oh God. Okay. I feel like this is Birdman year, and if it's not Birdman year, no, okay, it's Birdman or Spotlight, because I feel like two of those movies came out at the same time, or there was, like, the rebirth of Michael Keaton, even though he didn't go anywhere because he's super cool, uh, although he, I guess he did go somewhere, but uh, 2015. You,
1: you, oh, You got it. I did? It's Spotlight. It's Spotlight.
0: Whoa. I'm never good at that. Okay, all right, so there you
1: go. I know, I mean, I was wondering if anybody on the planet could remember Spotlight.
0: No, I mean, I only remember it because I remember there were two back-to-back Michael Keaton Academy Award years and it felt like that was, I was excited because I've been a Michael Keaton fan for such a long time and I I know that his rebirth was right about then.
1: Whoa, so you Keatonized it. So like your whole history, you can tell through Keaton.
0: I mean, that was the the only thing I was really reaching for, but I felt, Like, yeah, look, I don't know why that's stuck in my head.
1: (laughs) Well, yes, Spotlight beat it out for Best Picture. Inaritu won for Best Director. Um, And when you take that and rewind it back, the number one song on the charts on May 15th, 2015 was also a song from a movie. It was also a song from a movie about cars. A movie about driving, a movie about fireballs, and a movie that stands in opposition to everything that George Miller and his production designer wanted their movie, Fury Road, to be. Like, yes, uh, the the production designer of Fury Road called out this film specifically and said, We don't want to make this film in interviews. I'm talking about a song from the soundtrack of Fast and Furious Seven, Wiz Khalifa's See You Again. (laughs) You gotta, what do you think about that shade between car films? I mean, specifically what the production designer said was that the physics of a Fast and Furious movie make no sense. He doesn't want to make movies where, like, cars are zipping around in angles that they can't actually do and bank vaults are flying. He want to make a tactile film, not some sort of car fantasy.
0: Well, I think, you know, I think you could talk about this to a movie that came out in 2017 as well, which is, of course, the film I referenced many a time on this show, Baby Driver. Uh, mm-hmm. which also is not, I don't think it's in direct response to Fast and Furious, but I think when those movies become so uh, iconic as far as like what we associate as car films, uh, there's such a refreshing take to see real car driving, real stunt driving. I mean, it—it it is still to me one of the most impressive things captured on camera when you see Uh, non-CGI cars doing what cars can do. I've gotten to do, uh, for some reality show one time, I got to drive uh, a stunt car, and it was one of the most thrilling and insanely dangerous experiences that I've ever had because you are actually moving a giant car. Now, I felt safe, but there is an element of danger, and I think that, you know, whether it's Michael Bay or, or George Miller or Edgar Wright, like, there's always a chance something to go wrong. Something's going to go wrong and it's not because it's going to explode. It's like you're relying on precision timing. If the road is slightly, you know, messed up, anything could alter uh, a giant stunt. And this movie, I mean, wow. I mean, it's just it's mind-numbing the scope of cuz I wouldn't even call it a car racing movie. It, like there's elements of that here, but it's not like um I guess it is a chase. It's just different than what we've been used to. You know, I think we are used to seeing cars on city streets and, you know, from Bullet, uh, you know, even to Fast and Furious. To see this kind of chase in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, it just, it's, it really makes you feel like you've never seen anything like this.
1: I mean, that's definitely how I felt when I saw Fury Road for the first time. I have never seen a movie like this. You know, a movie that... Felt like it, you know, it like you could smell the actual danger in Mm. this film, you know, that this was a movie with a scope of imagination that blew me away. You know, cars covered in porcupine quills, uh, the giant doof on the red onesie. I think the moment I saw the giant doof on the red onesie, I just realized like this is a movie where you give yourself over completely. Completely. Like Are you not talking even a about the person
0: like, that I call Flea, like future Flea? That's you call like, him Flea? Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I feel like <laughs> his great-great-grandson is, that's his gig, is playing uh, on that, uh, that rig. Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess you can call him like Baby Flea is maybe better than his name. I mean, the doof. You don't like the doof? Oh, I, did, I thought that,
0: didn't... that was a term that you were just coming up with. I did not know that his name was the doof. Oh, no, his name is The Doof. Oh, wow. Well, names are not really like you don't have a scene where you meet The Doof. The Doof is just kind of full on in. The Doof is mid concert. Uh, I did not realize that. <laughs> okay, I mean, but the, yeah. but the
1: Doof knows who he is, man. Oh, yeah. The hell doof yeah. Had, I mean, this is a movie where they had like plenty of time to come up with The Doof's backstory. Like, you can see that The Doof is blind. Like, and you know, there's that moment kind of where like the chase pauses and then the chase picks up again. And it's that kind of like pause and then and you hear The Doof. Here, yeah. It's right here.
2: Warren! Set the war That's them! Why are they going back?
0: Do they wish to surrender?
2: They're heading for the canyon! They're going back to the citadel! They know it's undefended! Bollocks!
1: You can see at the briefest moment in that, that the doof is actually blind, that he has no eyes. And the actor who played the doof Mm -hmm. is is a guy named Iota. He's a musician from Australia. And Iota said that his backstory was that because the doof was blind and that in this society, if you were blind, you'd basically be like taken out to left to die on the cliffs, um, that he could play the guitar is what kept the doof alive. And I wasn't even meaning to do this so fast, but... Here we go. IOTA uh, competed to try to be Australia's um, contestant for Eurovision last year. I don't know if you want to hear what the doof actually sounds like. Well, yeah, let's do it. it. Come on. All right. Here's the doof. This is the doof at Eurovision 2020 at the Eurovision preliminaries.
0: So cover me in ashes and wipe all my
2: tears. Are we living for love? Are we living for fear in life?
1: All right, Iota Doof. We have uh, doofed it up, man. Can we talk about the names in this movie for doing it? Like, I think George Miller as a character namer is just beyond. I mean, Furiosa, maybe that's a little on the nose. Immortan Joe, incredible. The balance of that in a Immortan and a Joe. Yeah, and Morten and Joe. But it's the wives names that I really get obsessed with because like you know, Morten has his favorite wife, the one who's played by Rosie Huntington Whiteley. Mm-hmm. And her name is Splendid. And then everybody else is like the Dag or Cheeto or Toast. Can you imagine? You're like the Dag and she's Splendid.
0: Well, I mean, you know, I do want to. Uh, yes. I mean, that would be, I mean, very tough. I. It's amazing they are all able to get together on that road trip without too much Uh, you know, strife between them. I mean, you know, I imagine there's a little bit of pent-up anger about that. What's your
1: name? Splendid. What's your name? Toast the
0: Knowing. Oh, my gosh. Well, I I gotta say something about this movie because you're talking about names, and it's interesting because the main character, Max, doesn't even say his name until the last, you know, act of the film, and it's a very important part of the film. But this is a movie that I think, similarly to Inception, is saying something much larger than what we're seeing on screen, and where Inception I think really used plotting and subtlety and metaphor um, in and dialogue,
1: backstory and, and explanation. Backstory. Yes, and like, let me tell you how this is working.
0: This movie is a full-on explosion that uses action to simply tell you everything that you need to know. Not to say that this movie doesn't have dialogue and doesn't have you know dramatic scenes in it but this is a movie that is a full on explosion and i think it's such an interesting uh comparison piece to last week's film because they're both able to work on multiple levels and they're doing it in such different ways it's very very exciting i mean to me watching these movies back to back was extremely satisfying like extremely 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 satisfying because they both are using a lot of similar ideas, but doing it in very, very different ways. I mean, let's just say like this movie is a fucking spectacle. And if you don't believe that, which why would you not? Uh, there's also a version of it that you can watch called the Chrome version, which is black and white, which is the way they re- originally wanted this movie to be shot. And it's still a spectacle and black and white. Like it doesn't even need the amazing colors uh, that, This film has and the colors are outstanding, but I guess that kind of blew me away, too. It's like, wow, you can still get the scope of something in black and white. It still feels as big in black and white.
1: Yeah, I mean, because this is a film where I think the color palette that they run with here, you know, that kind of like, oof, that kind of cold, waterless blue of the Mm -hmm. sky And the hot, 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 hot orange of like the sand, like those colors that this film picks are seared in my memory. Like you can say the name Fury Road and I will get a flash of those colors in my head. But to desaturate it and show that it still works, I think proves George Miller's point. I mean, silent film to me is like one of our most beautiful art forms that I will always be like talking about and like trying to hype up because I think it can contain so much power and George Miller's own career even in films that have words and dialogue i think speak to the power of silent film i mean he is a guy who was raised on i would say like a hybrid silent film which is maybe what this film can be considered like that fury road itself can be considered like george miller grew up as a kid outside of a drive-in movie theater and he couldn't afford to go so he would just hang out outside the drive-in movie theater and watch the images on screen you know more like modern kind of films modern films right. from like the 60s and early 70s but he would make up up his own dialogue and he would make up his own sort like a story about what was going on and in that power he was watching films for how does an image tell a story like what do you need from imagery to do that and he proves it in this film I mean I think using images to tell stories to tell something so giant and so universal in scale is what silent film did tremendously and that power hasn't gone away I think there's even something in the way that he Costumes Furiosa that looks like a silent film, you know, putting the grease or the gasoline, as they call it, like across yeah. her eyes like that, makes her look like a silent film actress. I mean, that is what they did to make people's eyes stand out, to make people pop, to use makeup to say things that the dialogue wasn't able to say, to make you watch people's faces. He's like using silent film makeup techniques here in a colorful film to, to prove his point. That like you don't need gaz- gazillions of pounds of backstory to say something. I mean, even the words that he chooses, all carry a weight to call something gasoline or to call water aquacola, he gives you these glimpses into how he imagines like a capitalist society fell apart and things got renamed. Even when things don't have names, there's like a story in it, like the moment where Nux doesn't know the name for tree. Like he's trying to Mm -hmm. guess her behind a tree. All he just says is like, you know, that dry land just behind that thing. The lack of words for things tells the story. And you never need to hear him say, I don't know what a tree is. Right. What's a tree? Trees have always been dead. So it's a movie where the language itself is so selected that it also has power, even if there's very little of it.
0: Can I just maybe take a moment to take a, a detour here and say detour
1: in a movie about driving? How
0: dare you? (laughs) You know, this is something that works so well in this movie. Like, whereas I'm looking at you, Avatar, tries to do something very similar with, like, unobtainium and things like that that feel dumb. Like, that feels Mm. dumb. And what is the difference? And I don't know if the difference is that this is completely a different world and we are brought into it, but it also is our world. Like you can see our world in it. Like I think that when we talked about idiocracy uh, in one of our live shows, we were talking about how you see how things got degraded. And there's something about this that didn't feel clever. It felt um, desperate and of the world, right? Like I think unobtainium feels writerly. Gozoline, uh, you know, or Aquacola feels slightly more of the people of this world. I I don't know if I fully believe what I'm saying, but like I yeah. think there's there is a difference here. And yeah. there and is a difference bits when I would yeah. say George
1: Miller does it bad. Like sure. when Charlize Theron is visiting her old her old homeland, and she says her clan was swaddled dumb. That's the one that bothers me. Mm. I'm like, yeah, 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 we get it. Like you're raising up the women of this area who were like mothers and taking care of people, but to call your clan swaddled dumb, I'm like, really?
0: Yeah, but um,
1: it, for the most part, I like his I like his word choices. I guess we're, we all have an, an unobtainium in us.
0: No, absolutely. In this movie, I think is so in its own pocket. I mean, George Miller knows this world. This is not someone doing a take on Mad Max. This is not a, you know, a new director going, I grew up, you know, look, I know you love Dune. And uh, a lot of people are talking about Dune right now. It just premiered in Venice. Um, and I haven't seen it, so I, I, I throw nothing at it. But all I say is that, you know, it's a new director, a current director taking a new take on this world, whereas Mad Max has been in the hands of the same person. This person knows it. I think Mel Gibson would have been in this movie if he was younger and they got to make it in 2003 when they wanted to make it, you know, uh, but all these things kind of conspired against him to recast this movie. But this is his world. This is his Star Wars. This is, you know, this is his IP. This is, you know, and, and there's something so pure about it that it all works for me.
1: Yeah, I mean, our thrust this miniseries has been to figure out what works in the, in the blockbusters that work. And here, what I think we have is a franchise that comes from a single mind, like a single mind that has been in control of it the whole time. And it shapes yeah. it and it doesn't belong to a corporate conglomerate that also makes its money from selling cell phones. Right. You know, like there is no bottom line person here. There is an artist who is the who is the sole decision maker. Right. And maybe that means that it doesn't get made. And yeah, maybe like a Warner Brothers executive does show up in Namibia and like yells at him. But also, George Miller is going to win that fight, usually. Right. or He wins when the things are made. He loses when the things are not made. But it means that nothing gets made that is not quality.
0: Right. Well, I think, look, the there's a lot to be said about this movie. And again, just like Inception, I think we're going to have to leave some stuff on the table Because some people have gone into great detail to describe how stunts were done, how the practical effects merged with, uh, you know, CGI, where they shot it, how they shot it. But I will say that the concessions that he makes are very um, are very small in the sense of. He wanted to shoot it in black and white or black and chrome. And they said, no, you have to shoot it in color. And not only do you have to shoot it in color, but you have to shoot it in such a way that doesn't represent or feel like any of these post-apocalyptic films that have come before it. We don't want it to feel flat. So what does he do? He says, okay, if that's what's, that's what's going to cause you to make my movie, he creates a tapestry in a landscape where, you know, The, you know, we feel like we're on the moon, you know, and the, and we feel like the water is in the sky and we reverse. And there's the, the imagery on this movie is like, he's not letting it, um, he's not letting it tie him down. It's not letting him hurt his, his ideas. And I think that that's really interesting. Like he goes, all right, here's your note and here's how I interpret that note. And he makes something so amazingly beautiful and in a weird way. I felt like there was something so cartoony about this movie and not like cartoony in um, quality or tone, but in look, I mean, I've never seen anything like this. The only time I've ever been able to see anything like this is in something that is animated. And it almost felt like hand-drawn animation. It felt like that when the ideas are, uh, are only as small as your imagination, like every Everything pops here.
1: I mean, you say that and I immediately think like, oh, well, I mean, it is exactly the same colors as like a Roadrunner cartoon. It has that same like simplicity to it. Like I'm running, I'm chasing. Here is our landscape and our landscape is this simple and vivid and it makes us pop even more, which I think honestly... I feel like Roadrunner comes up all the time. I feel like so many filmmakers have been shaped by Roadrunner cartoons going all the way back to like when we were talking about um, raising Arizona. There's something just so yes. primal in that. I would say I'm just going to make a nonsense statement now. When it comes to the history of cinema, the Roadrunner is more important than Mickey Mouse.
0: Um, I believe you're right. I think that yeah. Walt Disney is more important to cinema, but I believe the Roadrunner is more important than Mickey Mouse.
1: Oh, I love agreeing with
0: you. Yeah, there we go.
1: <laughs> That's so nice. But yeah, when you look at the history of this production, it feels as though George Miller had the story in his head and just was trying to get it out in so many different ways while trying to keep a level of quality control on it. I mean, the first time he wanted to make it was 2001. It was almost ready to go. And then September 11th happened, and the American dollar just like plummeted, and he had to cancel the production. Then he was going to try to make it again in 2003. Uh, They were going to shoot it in Namibia then. And when they were about to leave, the Iraq war started, and it suddenly became unsafe to be filming in Namibia, said the studio. And also, Mel Gibson was going to be in that iteration of it, and Mel Gibson's wife apparently sent George Miller an email that was like, are there Muslims there? Because I don't want to go if there's Muslims there. Yeah, that that was Mel Gibson's wife at the time. Uh, So that got scrapped. And then it goes into its own wilderness for years where George Miller is saying, maybe I'll make it as like an anime cartoon. He was thinking about trying to figure out how to make an anime version of this for a long time. Which is interesting
0: because I imagine, and I should look at this, but like, you know, the Animatrix was something that I thought was a very interesting uh, connection to the the Matrix films, right? Like it allowed you to kind of that was in two thousand three, so that was you know I guess a lot earlier, but but I imagine in two thousand three he's maybe watching that because it is the Matrix is huge, and then these series of short films come out that expand the world in a way that I I think I mean I'd rather take the. Uh, the Animatrix over the sequels, <laughs> honestly, uh, you know, because it, it was such a beautiful scope and it allowed you to kind of explore the world in a very different way.
1: No, it's true. And he thought that there was like a lot of space to make kind of like a hybrid film that took mm-hmm. some of the sensibility from that cell of animation and like felt like his own. I mean, of course, like. The backstory here being that George Miller makes some of the most beautiful animated films of all time. I've recently, owing to only during the pandemic, watched Happy Feet for the first time. Oh, yeah. Very behind in my Happy Feet knowledge. And when I was watching that movie, I felt like I was re-watching Fury Road. Like I was watching him Work out some of the type of images of scale of cliff versus person of like water of landscape versus small figure that there are shots in in Happy Feet that feel like rough drafts of what he wants to do in Fury Road that he's just already he's just working out the same kind of ideas and visuals. It it was really staggering to see that movie like after knowing Fury Road so well.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, just just for people who may not understand, like what George Miller has been a part of besides Mad Max, because I think it is interesting. I think the films are so iconic that it it just kind of like you. I mean, I think probably people are surprised, like, oh, uh, you know, like, oh, he did Happy Feet. You know, he was involved in Babe. Uh, He he wrote it and he produced it. And there's a lot of talk about how involved he was in the directing of Babe. Uh, and there's bigger stories there to be told. But, uh, you know, then he directed Babe, Pig in the City, which is a very dark sequel and a great sequel. Um, you know, and then also has done things like Lorenzo's Oil with, like, Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon and and did Witches of Eastwick. was a weird-ass film, Witches of Eastwick. Yeah, like, he's just, he's got a very interesting... I guess like a very interesting collection of credits, one of which, which is in the uh, Twilight on the movie, he remade the very famous, uh, you know, nightmare at 20,000 feet where someone looks out the window in an airplane and sees, you know, a monster on the wing. Like he, that was his, uh, you know, so he's a very, you know, he's making a lot of movies. He's doing a lot of stuff, but he's, I think every one of the things that he has made has been incredibly interesting and very different.
1: No, I think so, too. And yet there is an essential Mm Miller-ness.
0: There's a darkness, right? There's a darkness about, you know, I want to go into it and say, jump into, I I guess, my larger idea about this movie, but I think humanity is at the center of a lot of what he is talking about. Yeah, Um, there's
1: something in him that doesn't sugarcoat, that even if he makes films for children, they're going to have... A brother's grim-esque kind of approach to the fact that the world is not always cuddly.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, with this film, obviously it's a it's a very powerful statement, just like idiocracy is, about where we are going. You know, we look at this movie, it comes out in 2015. And I just read you that list of things that are going on. Um,
1: You mean that the world was dying?
0: The world. Yeah, the world is dying. It still is. And we are coming up against, you know, extreme violence, especially here in the States. Uh, And there is an energy that things are starting to break down. And this movie, just like Idiocracy does goes well where where does it go where does it go and there's there's certain things that you look at and and I think probably even more in 2021 than even 2015 where you go oh yeah I see what this could be the warlords and 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 the the pleasure of battle and dying for someone that you believe in but you don't even think about what they are doing you know it's like there is uh you know we are taking oh, vital God. F- I've
1: never thought of this film in the context of of how do, I don't know how I didn't think of this film in the context of Trump but I hadn't <laughs> I
0: Yeah no I mean the
1: purity of this film coming out in 2015 before that man took over my entire brain for
0: four Well years. but you know what I think it is like you can take Trump out of it and just say the ideological uh worship of someone or an idea yeah. versus you know what is actually going on around you we're taking vital people and we are draining them of their blood to fill people who are not vital but just basically minions i mean these uh war boys are lemmings they are you know in many ways like cartoons they are they are not you know yes there's a handful of them that have a different kind of an outfit maybe their cars are a little bit different but they are just there to be cannon fodder they are they are addicted to uh you know they are addicted to uh, drugs, you know this kind of uh, this, you know, spray paint or whatever this thing is. I'm sure you have the right name for it. Uh, but the idea that they are, they are living not in service of themselves. And what kind of makes this movie so interesting is that the root of it is, in my opinion, you have you know, Furiosa, who is trying to reclaim her own humanity trying to escape this idea like there must be the grass is greener there must be something else over the fence and we've talked about this a lot like well what happens when you get over there and and there's nothing obviously but but this idea of of rescuing something that is pure and and you know it's it's this idea of like in many i think in many senses and i'll shut up in one second like a pregnant woman is as close as you can get to, like, what Mother Earth is. Like, she is making life, and she's trying to, like, save life, not to be someone's property, not to be a warlord, not to be fed into a system, but actually become a person. And there's a a, a strong sense in this entire film, to me, about these characters going, how do I become human again? I am such in a system of surviving. Like, Mad Max says it in the beginning— I just need to survive that's his life is just to survive it's not there's no reason to survive it's just to survive and I think what he finds is a reason to survive a reason to find himself a reason to open himself up again in a world and I think we all can identify with like we just do what's expected of us we we punch the clock we do the thing and this is like these are people breaking out of that cycle obviously albeit way more extreme but that's what I got
1: Yeah, but then he still has to walk away, you know, like, because when you have that beginning, I think this film really clearly from the beginning says where Max is as a character.
2: Where are you, Max? Here they come again, worming their way into the black matter of my brain. Help us, Max. You promised to help us. I tell myself, they cannot touch me.
1: Alone, Dad. He doesn't want to be touched by people. He feels as though being alone is the only way that he can have his power. And yet he doesn't really change his mind. Like he'll, he'll work with people for a little bit. But at the end of the movie, like he still has to kind of hold true and be alone. And I will say to me, the weak spot of this film is I don't like his flashbacks to his son, at all? Like, I think that you don't kind of like those, in- like,
0: those. They're because they're not like, like, they're not like full flashbacks. They are like, they are literally flashes. Yeah. They're just know?
1: flashes. I don't like the way that they are. I don't like the way that they're handled. They look too a horror movie to me. They look mm-hmm. tacky, I guess. Like, they look dated in a way that nothing else in the film looks dated to me. And I feel like we don't need them, honestly.
0: I, but- I like, I like how they were done. In the first section where he is escaping, uh, becoming a blood bag, right? Like, the
1: very, very, very first The like very, one.
0: very first, like, yeah. I'll give him,
1: like, the one where he's, like, holding on to the, the, the grate and he drops. Like yes, Like, when he loses yes. a fight because he's distracted. Yes. That we see visually that they're making him lose his focus and getting mm-hmm. him hurt. Yeah. And then after that, I wish they were gone.
0: I, I think that they may be used a little bit too much, but at the same time, I think to your point about like not knowing the name for tree, it's a movie that also doesn't, we don't see like a, we don't go back like the road, you know, the movie, the road uh, where like we go back into the house and we go, well, this is what it was like, you know, the, you know, before it happened or the moments before it happened. Like I appreciate that. Uh, But I think it was an interesting way to show like it's the only tether that he has to his humanity. These 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 glimpses of a character who doesn't speak. We need to show that there's still an emotional, uh, you know, connection to something because we don't. The way that we only way that we see him is running, 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 trying to escape, trying to get away. So that I hear what you're saying, but I also feel like without that, I don't think the end. With him in Furiosa, where he reveals his name is as impactful.
1: I don't know about that. I mean, like, we don't have those glimpses for Furiosa, and I think her character is even stronger than
0: his in the film. Well, I think that she gets to speak a lot more. A little bit more, but not oh, like tons, tons, tons. I mean, more. you get the, you get this. I mean, you understand what she's doing, why she's doing it. Like you may not understand like the years that she put in to become the you know the the war rig driver, but you understand what she's doing. You understand when she gets to that land and she talks to those women that you know what she was doing, and you see her grief when she drops to her knees and and is you know without. You know, she is inconsolable in this moment. You see, she is, I think, a much more, it is her movie. I mean, it, it is her movie, yeah. but I
1: think like it can just still be her movie then. And he just still doesn't need those flashbacks mm. to establish himself in that way. Okay. I mean, it's hard for me to separate. Do I just hate the way that they're done or do I hate that they exist? Okay. Um, I definitely hate the way that they're done. For sure. Right. Like, that, just kind of, like, right in the middle of the face. It's like, oh, it's like an Annabelle movie. It just it just, right. it seems really tacky to me. Do um, so I hate that they exist? Like, could they have done be, been done just auditorily? Probably. Would I be, like, mm. fine if they're auditory? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. But also, I don't know if I even need them at all. Because I think what we even see in the beginning is just clear enough. You care about Max because he's there. You care enough about Max because he's a person who... Even compared to the first three films, here he is powerless. It's kind of like they're saying his time as being the Mad Max you knew from the first three films has come to an end. Because like the very first thing that happens, there's an opening chase scene and he immediately loses immediately loses. His car gets destroyed. Like his time is at an end. He is not the person now who is the best equipped for survival. It is somebody with more of a plan like Furiosa who can work inside the system and figure out how to break it apart. Like he can't be the person he's been. It's failing him from the very start. And this is an action film where I would say for almost the first quarter of his time on screen... He is powerless. You have this first whole chase scene and he is just chained up, you know, face in the grill, coming at you right in the middle of the camera. The idea that not only is this a movie about the rising and anointing of a heroine, but about the falling down of a hero. He can help her, but he's not going to be the hero himself anymore. I think that's so interesting. And I think there's enough there in that arc that I don't need, you know, like creepy, cool, ghoulish, like blue light kid popping up and being like, boo. And also that kid doesn't look like anybody really. Like it's not how I remember the kid from the first movie looking. And so it just is confusing. Like, who is this? I don't care.
0: All I'm going to say is that his journey works for me and there's different ways to execute that journey. And I think that the opening sequence is better. I definitely feel like they may have gone to that. Well, maybe a few more times than they needed to, uh, especially like once you get to, uh, you know, out in the field we know we know it and i don't think it's revealing much more so i understand right. what you're saying that
1: last little glimpse before he's like we're gonna drive back
0: yeah um so yeah i mean look again i, I like i'm not gonna die on this hill um lots of people died on this hill a lot of, or in this canyon lot, yeah. uh by the way i mean can we just say like also the humor in this film to I think that like when you talk about this movie, you think about the amazing stunts, the amazing visuals, and it is a grim, dire look at the future. But this movie is funny, and you talk about you know uh, the guitar player like that's funny when that comes on. That's funny. This movie still hits the beats of what the fuck am I watching? And I love it. Like I have not seen anything like this. And and I think there's an amazing sequence. Um, or not even sequence, there's an amazing shot where you know they're in the middle of this sandstorm and it's this insane, you know, destruction and mayhem going on. And, you know, and time has passed, and you open up on these dunes and these like this mountain in the distance, and then it reveals itself not to be a mountain at all, but to be Mad Max's, you know, head buried in the sand, and he like rises up out of, out of the sand. It's such a, I mean, it's such a incredibly funny and cool visual. And I think that that's the interesting thing about George Miller and why he's so good at doing some of these kids films as well Is it's still like, it's funny and jaw dropping and not, that's not something that most people do.
1: Yeah. It's funny and it's surprising and it's, it's motivated. I mean, like one of the laughs that I've always heard when I see this film in the theater comes in the middle of that sandstorm. You have that like epic car explosion. The sand is all over, huger than anything you can imagine. You have that music just behind you, like the grand, grand, epic, epic, classical choral type of sound. And then all of that is capped by Nux, you know, just being like, what a day. And you kind of laugh out of relief because you're in suddenly the mindset of a character that you realize is really alien to you. You know, right. like his set of values and his set of everything that he admires and finds entertaining right. is completely surprising. Like it exists in its own absolute culture. And so you laugh at that line. Because it's just—it's not at all what you're expecting anybody to say. He gets these like kind of bursts of like wow, laugh, you know, and that wow to me is the essence of what you're talking about—the sense of awe and beauty and dark humor all at once. They're kind of yeah.
0: like, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, no, exactly, and I—I I think that, uh, you know, I—I I think that <sighs> I'm so excited to see this kind of like level of artistry in, you know, this, to me, this probably feels like the right movie for you. Like I, I'm, I'm guessing that Mad Max checks all your boxes, right? Cause it's got scope. It's got an incredibly visual director with something to say. It also, uh, you know, is not, it's, it's not like overly long. It also plays with the world that we want. Like it's, it, it just feels like, this is the blockbuster for you.
1: It is. It is. It really is. Like it, it has the ambition first and foremost that I need. Like I need to feel like I'm in the hands of a filmmaker with just massive ambition to accomplish it. Right.
0: It doesn't feel, you know, no one else makes this movie, right? Like no no one could make this movie. Even if Dennis Villeneuve made Mad Max, it would not be this It could maybe look like this, but it would not be that. This is George Miller's humor, sensibility, message, and world. And you feel it in a way that is so uh, incredibly unique and rare. And I think we feel it a lot in worlds where we see, like, directors, like, when it was, like, Uh, Sylvester Stallone doing Rocky like yes he had this story to tell and he all these little things the first one let's you know like don't worry about the rest but like they this is the story that he wanted to tell the way he wanted to tell the way he wanted to see it and like I think it's exciting to see someone continue to build out this world and each one of them drastically different and expanding and blowing up. Like he's become a better filmmaker with each one. He's not going backwards. He's blowing this world forward. I don't know any, I don't know any franchise that is like this.
1: Well, no. And what you're describing, everything that it is, it's created to just be that like, it is directed to be a work of art. It is not created to sell me an Audi or like Beats headphones.
0: Right. As a matter you know? of fact, the 150 cars that were made for this movie, only 15 survived. Like you're never seeing any sort of product placement. You're not seeing any. I mean, not even clever product placement. Like, well, the only thing that survived are these uh, Chrysler Pacifica rims. You know, it's, yeah, exactly. it's, you know thank yeah. God
1: we've got these. Yeah. I mean, you put this in contrast to what we were talking about, like the origin of Men in Black. You know, and how that movie started figuring out who was going to have its Happy Meal or if it could get a Happy Meal. Like before there was a script, before there was a script, Men in Black was wondering where their Happy Meal was going to come from. Yeah. And it's not that I don't think you can have a good movie that sells cheeseburgers. I eat cheeseburgers, you know? Right. I mean, I'm trying to eat fewer cheeseburgers, but whatever. Like, it's just, why is it being created? And if it's being created for the cheeseburgers first... It's not going to put the effort in the art that this movie does. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and that makes me it makes me sad at the same time that this movie lost money. I mean, I feel like if this movie had made more money, we'd probably have another Mad Max by now. But honestly, maybe not. Maybe George Miller would just be like, I will do it when it strikes me and I will do it when the time is right. Well, for I mean, me, did you see it what just happened that I want?
0: Well, did you see what just happened? I mean, he saw Edgar Wright. Uh, one night in Soho. And he's like, there's my Furiosa. He's now wants uh, and Taylor joy to be his young Furiosa because there's been a lot of talk about the Furiosa movie. I always assumed it was going to be Charlize again. Uh, in a way, I'm kind of bummed that it's not. Uh, and I don't know how I feel about her. But I don't. But again, I don't know. I don't know. I simply don't yeah. know. I mean, I, we'll see. like, name, so. I feel like
1: having all of his movies get canceled so many times, I will see a Furiosa movie as real when I'm sitting down holding a bag of popcorn. Like, I won't even like think it's real when I'm ordering the popcorn. I will have to be holding the bag of popcorn and sitting in the theater to know that it's really there. Right. Like, uh, when people were doing the Inception red carpet, Tom Hardy was getting asked about this movie in 2010 on the Inception red carpet because he was already signed and it had already been canceled. They had, like, shown up. Um, at the time they're going to shoot it, I think in Australia and where they had planned to shoot the film, there had been a rainstorm and suddenly there are like flowers everywhere and lakes and like pelicans in what was going to be their dust storm area. So two weeks before it was supposed to start shooting in 2010, they had to pull it for like the third time.
0: Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So so I hope there will be a Furiosa. I'm not going to get attached to it. I, Furiosa to me is like Bitcoin. Like, we'll see what happens. <laughs>
0: it's a bummer to know this movie lost money. Cause I, I thought of this movie as like the movie that everyone of my friends talked about, that everyone wanted to see that everyone just fell completely in love with. Um, I, I took my wife to it. Uh, and if you know anything about June, she didn't know anything about this movie. She's like, Oh, I like Charlize. I want to watch a movie with her. And the movie opened and she's like, what the fuck is this? And then I watched her just completely, uh, like lean into it and, and walked away loving it. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I felt like this movie did have that ability because while, and I, to kind of go back to what we were talking about with Transformers, like, you know, while those are big spectacles, they don't have this other layer to it, which I think is artistry or uh, an emotional depth. And I'm trying to think of like, this it's probably a bad example, but I'm going to use it anyway.
1: Oh, please. I hope it's really bad.
0: All right. I'm going to say this is like the equivalent of like a Pollock painting, like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's like, it's like, it's just, it, it looks like, well, any like, okay, you just splatter paint all over the, like, it's messy. It's, but like, there is, there's art there. There is, the, you know, there is genius there. There is a method to this madness. And I, and I feel like, That's what people are bowing down to. It's not like people could make this movie. I would say, again, the third act of many Transformers movies are like this, but it's not because it's, it's completely, um, again, I think I'm just wrestling with this idea and looking at all these movies back to back to back, like, oh, you can do this. You can create a spectacle. You can create big, giant set pieces that are explosive and dynamic and still make the entire thing grounded. Like you don't have to, you don't have to cut back to emotionally connect you to something. And I think that's the thing that I'm looking at. And when I walk away, I go, I I'm thinking about climate change. I'm thinking about our beholdens to just following the system. I'm thinking about how we follow blindly leaders. I'm thinking about, you know, do these people even care about us? They just are forwarding what they need and what they want and they have the best and we have the worst and it's such a it's such a statement about society and it's such a, a statement about us the general we understanding what we really truly want and 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 becoming individuals again you know because i think we're in right. a society that wants to always put us in in, uh, in boxes
1: but it sounds like what you're saying is you like it when art leaves a space for you to fill with your own thoughts.
0: Right. But it doesn't have to be mumblecore. We're all in a house for oh, a weekend. God, no. You know what I'm saying? Like again, I fi- the movie
1: that I always rail about. I'm staring out of a bus window and you don't know if I'm happy or sad. Right. Worst ending of any movie ever.
0: Yeah. And it's like, like nine movies a year. What I'm thinking is, and this is where we go back and forth, it's like, well, will anyone get this much money to make a movie like this again? Probably not, because it lost $40 million, and it's a giant IP, and I'm sure many people didn't even know about the original IP, but because it is an IP, they knew that they were going to bring people into it. You know, it but it wins all these Oscars, so then it actually elevates it again, right? Because then it becomes an independent movie, and probably all the money they would have spent on the Oscar campaign, they actually uh that $40 million isn't really lost because they lost, they want you know, it's like it's an interesting like battle how this movie was incredibly successful, but also commercially not as successful. But we don't hold our Oscar films to be commercially successful either and it's like that rare thing when a movie that is commercially successful and also oscar-worthy um meet oftentimes they are very separate entities
1: no it's true but i want to pick up more on like some of the stuff you're talking about i mean you were talking about the war boys for example being fodder yeah and you know the way that you were using it, it isn't that the movie treats the war boys like fodder necessarily you know these aren't yeah the people we were reeling about last week, these aren't like the robot alien bugs of an Avengers movie. Right. What you get is that they're in a society that has trained them to only think of themselves as fodder. You know, that their society has trained them to think that the only worthy thing they can do with their lives is die when they're told to die. Like, die in the most epic way possible. I mean, they're being raised like, what, like worker ants. They're being raised to think of themselves as the insects in a Marvel movie. And so that they're all happy when we get like this first glimpse of their society when like Morsov that first guy to kind of jump into the porcupine car like has his moment of Valhalla
0: And then, I mean, I think we see the arc of this when the one war boy that we follow for the whole movie dies for something he actually believes in. Like he actually, when he says, witness me, like you see him doing that throughout the whole film, like witness me. I want, I want to die in war. like four times. Yeah. And then that last one is him going, I want to die for my own reason. Like I want to die for what I believe in, not just to die, to die.
1: I don't think this movie thinks he's special, right? No. That like no. Nux, this character played by um what's his name? Nicholas Holt, who, yeah. ha- who has become such an interesting actor to me, Nicholas Holt. Yeah. At first I was like, oh, he's another one of those giant cheekbone young weirdo guys. Do I have to remember his face? But he's just gotten more and more interesting. I love the I love his choices of roles. But I don't think this film thinks Knux is special. He is not necessarily a better Person than any of the other war boys, he's just the only one who gets away and has enough space that he's around other people who have been abused just like him and are able to tell him what's been happening to him. Yeah. You know, and I don't love what this movie does to Riley Keough too. Okay, there are two things I think I don't like about this movie. Then three, I don't like swaddledum. I don't like the kid flashback. Just the
0: term. Okay, I but don't go like ahead. the
1: term yeah. swaddledum? I don't like the style of the flashbacks, and I don't like that once Riley Keough has her moment with Nicholas Holt where they kind of bond and he realizes he too is being raised to just be like a cog in a Morton Joe's machine
0: yeah. that from
1: then on, whenever you see Riley Keough, she's just forced to stare at him and give him politician wife face,
0: right, right, a politician right, right. white
1: face. That's all she, like, I think she has a promise as an actress, but they waste her for the rest of this film, making her do politician face at him. Terrible. I don't buy their love story at all. But that said, the redemption of Nux is the kind of human, morality that I like to see in a movie where tons of people die. (laughs) I mean, I wish that tons of people weren't always dying in movies, but I like that they, in caring about Nux, you feel sad about everybody's waste of life. Right. Yeah. And that's really valuable when I think that Avengers movies have very little concern for most carnage.
0: Well, yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of movies, they had that like general reaction to it. Right. Cause of the Superman man of steel, like everyone dies and they're like, Oh, now we have to figure out like how to do mass city destruction, but actually care about the people. Now I find it to be like, I find it to be like the checking of a box, which, makes it even feel more lame now. It's like, okay, well, then this one, the Avengers actually take all the people and they put them on a small area and then they lift that up into outer space so those people stay safe, but then we're going to fight down here or whatever the solution is. It's like, well, now actually what we are going to show is people escaping the buildings and then we're going to knock it down. It's like, all right, what? it's not even the
1: bystanders, just like even the bad guys. I think they treat bad guys as nothing.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I look, I love the Fast and Furious movies. I don't make any bones about it. But uh, this last one, People, people don't die. So I mean, many people so get many crushed many people in
1: their cars. Yeah. I was really I mean, sad. on the sidewalk.
0: On the side, yeah. you to tell me those microwaves flying out of the, the store. is not going to like knock somebody's head off? Forget yeah. it.
1: I'm the living today, day, and like, you got to do your one thing for your family, and I die? For your little kid that you left locked in a basement the whole movie, like in yeah. your barn? And like my, my, my mom dies for that? What is that? So wild. Anyway, maybe you... Ha- I'm not trying to put, like, a moral code on every single movie like this, but I think this is a movie with a strong moral code. And what I find interesting about the planning of the story from George Miller is I don't think he sat down and thought to himself, like, I'm going to make a feminist movie. I don't think he was like, I'm going to make Captain Marvel or I'm going to make that scene in The Avengers where all the women high five each other and they're like, we got this, y'all. I think he just thought, where is humanity going? And when he thought about the problems of where he thought humanity was going, kind of the dehumanization of people and that people would become one of the next commodities, it becomes feminist just by being true to what you see happen in the world. You know, he's true to where he thinks his arc is going and then it becomes a feminist film and then he respects that.
0: There's a moment, you know, when he was being interviewed and they're like, well, why do you have, you know, a woman editing it? His woman, the woman is his wife. Um, And he's like, because if I had a guy edit this movie, it would be like every other action film out there. And he felt that his wife was bringing something different to to the table, which I thought was, you know, like he is thinking about certain things. Like he's not just doing it willy nilly. Like, you know, he knows that he's got to he's got to bring a different perspective to the table. I I think that the the smartest people I mean, movies are made in an edit room and and obviously uh, they're also made on you know, on set too, but I think like a great, a great editor. And we've talked about this, uh, can, can make a good movie, uh, great. And we talked about Verna Fields, you know, Verna Fields, uh, helping Spielberg with Jaws. And I think that a lot of her, you know, her, uh, input was, was huge. You know, Martin Scorsese works with, uh, Thelma Schoonmaker. And I think, I think it's always amazing to bring in another person from a very different point of view than yours to add something to it that you might not be able to add. And I think to be aware of that and not just to surround yourself with people who look exactly like you is a very uh, important thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's listen to him talk about his wife. I wish I could find a better clip of his wife actually talking about her craft, but I couldn't find one. So this is him talking about why he likes working with her. And yes, Margaret Sixel did go ahead and win the Oscar for editing for this movie. She won the Oscar, which I love. she was like a, she came out of documentary film, I think, and then this became her first action film.
2: In her case, uh, I've learned at certain moments to just literally let, let her do her, her own thing, because she's the one editor I've worked with who often can see things that I can't see and, and, uh, and my first impulse to say, well that's not going to work. Hmm. And most times I find I'm right, but if I let her do it, she'll always surprise me and say, oh, that's a much better solution. Such as. Okay, okay. There's small incremental moments, that, uh, and a film like Fury Road is made up of that. It's a mosaic art and that sense. The editing is just extraordinary in that film. Yeah, um, and that's, that's... Did you disagree about anything in that editing? A, 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 a lot. She, she did say to me... Uh, I'm here to stop you embarrassing yourself. And, and, she did, and, and she's got a much lower uh, boredom threshold than I have. Wow. So she'll get very bored with repetition.
1: I mean, that's an interesting dynamic, that when you work with somebody who knows how to tell you no, you become better. Right. You know, that That's one of the things that he finds makes their dynamic really special because you do have to put George Miller in that class of director who does act Tyrant is a strong word, but strong hand oh, in okay. coming across this film. Like he has a very strong hand. He I would say he is collaborative in hiring and trusting people. He doesn't seem to be micromanagey, but he does definitely lead a set where it's like George Miller's way is the way, this is how it works, which from what you hear caused a bit of friction with like the
0: actors. You know, that the actors well, I mean, were kind of
1: like overwhelmed. I mean, how would you not? Like, how could everybody not have a breakdown in this movie? You're in the desert for eight
0: months. I mean, I'm friends with a uh, a woman who is a stunt uh, person. And she was down there for four months before they started shooting, working on getting ready for the film to start and to then do these stunts for real. And then uh, she got injured and then could never complete it. So she already did like four or five months and then wasn't even able to do Oh, wasn't even able to do the work. And it's so
1: disappointing for her.
0: And this movie also is shot in order. And anyone who knows anything about production, that is the most expensive way to shoot anything. Like when you ever hear of anyone saying, especially a movie like this, where they go forward and then backward, like they could have, you know, they that which means that they ran through all those sets. And then they went backwards through all those sets where I think a lot of filmmakers would be like, okay, we're going to shoot all the Citadel stuff and we'll shoot the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie and we'll shoot, you know, and like, while we're here, we have all this. No, that is a, you know, he wanted to shoot it in order. And that, I, I think those things help, you know, I think those things help character development. I think those things help. I think it helps. I also think it, it makes it very expensive.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, what I, what the stories I seem to keep hearing about this are that, George Miller had so much on his plate between like all of the costuming, all of these real cars and real stunts and real things that actually worked. I mean, the, the doof's guitar actually blew fire. So you're George Miller. You're responsible for all of these people on the set. You're also, for some reason, everybody keeps bringing this up, wearing a leather jacket, no matter how hot it is, just to mm. do it, just to be like, I'm leather jacket guy. Just the way that like Cecil B. DeMille used to always wear knee-high boots and jaw purse to set. Like this is my director costume or the way that... Brian De Palma always wears one of those little vests, those like beige vests with pockets all over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Miller was like, I'm leather jacket guy. But so you're doing so much and caring about all of these moving parts, moving literally moving parts that could literally kill people, which was a lot of stress for him. I mean, do you know this about George Miller, that he was a doctor before he was a filmmaker? And that's how he got started on Mad Max in the first place? No. Yeah, he was a doctor in Australia and he kept getting patients... That were like torn up from car wrecks. And he wanted to make a movie about driving because he was seeing people get torn apart by cars. And he was, It was, I wouldn't call it like a gigantic PSA, but it was on his mind because of what he was witnessing in the emergency rooms. And so because he had promised in his medical career that he would follow the Hippocratic Oath, that he would never, ever, ever do anything that would get anybody hurt. He takes safety on this incredibly carefully, even while wanting the most danger that he could have. And so because his brain is like in all of these positions, somebody like Tom Hardy is back in the position that he was with Christopher Nolan being like, I guess I'm kind of on my own in creating this character. I'm not working with like Noah Bombeck, who's going to be on my shoulder, whispering into my ear, like, here's where you are in this scene. I have to figure this out because there's just too much happening. And I'm and i living in real time there for eight months. I'm also sort of broken by this, right? And, and, so, and by the
0: way, like, can you imagine like being on this set? This is not like The Mandalorian. You're not on a soundstage. You are in the middle of the desert. It probably takes you an hour and a half to get to wherever you're going to be shooting. An hour and a half back. There's no cell towers out here. Like you are in the thick of it. In your and, and even when you go home at night, there's no energy. Like, think about it as like you are in we talked about going to boot camp in a lot of these war movies, like you were in a more extreme version of that.
1: Yeah, they are essentially living it. Yeah. And it seems that for Charlize Theron and for Tom Hardy, they have two very different acting styles anyway, from the beginning, you know, like how they like to create a character. Like I think Tom Hardy is more method than Charlize is right. Like Charlize has that kind of physical control that sort of like, They talk about it as like a dancer's control, you know, Mm -hmm. but just that way of approaching her character that's like thought out, physical, intelligent, but it's not like coming from breaking herself apart on the inside to create something new, which is, I think, what Tom Hardy was trying to do here. And so they seem to butt heads and it seems like they came up with a dynamic that was kind of like Furiosa and Max, like, okay, we don't see eye to eye on everything. We are in this impossible situation and we have to just get through this together, even if we don't love people being together all of the time. I mean, I don't know. I find all this interesting because most of it wouldn't have even come out if not for the fact that when this film premiered at Cannes, Tom Hardy took a moment at that first press tour when Cannes had just seen this movie for the first time to publicly apologize to George Miller. And when you listen between the lines of the apology, it kind of sounds like Tom Hardy lost it a lot on set, as I certainly would. I would have lost my mind if I had to do what he'd do on the set. But he's now witnessing the film and seeing what it was you know, realized everything that was going on and why he couldn't get that actor attention that he felt like he needed.
2: I I have to apologize to you because I got frustrated. And um, there was no way that George could have explained what he could see um, in the sand when we were out there. And because of the due diligence that was required to make everything safe and to make everything, which is incredibly complex, um, so simple, and what I saw, which is a relentless barrage of um, complexities simplified in a, in a, in a, in a fairly linear uh, story. I, I, I mean, I knew he was brilliant, but I, I didn't quite know how brilliant until I saw that. That's my first reaction was, oh, oh my God, yeah, I, I owe George an apology for being so myopic.
0: It's so interesting. We were talking about this last week about how an actor prepares for a part. And I think it's incredibly unnerving to be a part of something that is so large that when you are doing good no one is stopping you or when you feel like you don't understand it because you are not that person you have to trust the process and I think a lot of actors who are established don't always feel that way they've gotten burned and they want to make sure they know what's going on but how do you explain this world how do you explain what it will look and feel like I mean the film is sped up in sections the colors are vibrant like you can't Even if you were to watch the dailies, do you understand really what it will be? You can't, it's, this movie is jagged again, going back to the Pollock thing. Like you can't just look at a couple of dots on, on the paper and go like that. Yeah, I get, I get what it's going to be. You you have no idea. And I can imagine for someone like Tom Hardy, he probably isn't go with the flow. Like, and, and you know, it seems like he's not, and that's okay. Like that's, every actor is completely different. And, uh, you know, and maybe Charlize is much more confident in who she is and what she's doing because her performance is, is really unwavering. And obviously the reason why people are calling for not necessarily a more Mad Max, but they're calling for more Furiosa.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to listen to one of the clips from Charlize just in character here, you know, when she's playing Furiosa. that moment where I think we get the most backstory of her character that we're going to get the whole time where she talks about her childhood.
2: I was born there why did you leave? I didn't. I was taken as a child. Stole it. You've done this before?
0: Many times. Now that I drive a war rig, this is the best shot I'll ever have. And then
2: they are looking for hope. What about you?
1: Redemption. I mean maybe then what is good about George Miller's approach is he figured out what he wasn't quite equipped to handle, which might have been some of this interior stuff for her for the for the girls in the truck especially. And he did at least hire or get help from a person who was the expert. You hear, of course, like getting help from uh, Eve Ensler, you know, the really like... Oh,
0: wow, really? I didn't know that. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, well, here, I'll let George set it up.
2: So just as we had advisors running the war boys and the whole sort of quasi-military side of it, we had to have somebody, and I happened to hear Eve, she was down in Australia doing some human rights lecture, I happened to hear her on the radio saying, oh... oh This is exactly the sort of themes that we, you know, that that female side of the story has. And she happened to be in Africa at the same time. She was able to give us a week. And it was really valuable for the female side of the cast. And what was really interesting, those workshops, a lot of the stunt guys started to turn up. I think all that stuff seeps into the story. It gives the actors more authority. You know, a film like this is very helter-skelter. And if you don't have strong internal logic... It could be just chaotic. Uh.
1: Yeah. So basically Eve Ensler came to set for a week and spent like a week with all of the girls playing the wives, a week with Charlene. Charlene is like talking about what is it like to grow up in abuse? You know, what is it like to be a woman who is, you know, like a sex slave who is in a domineering relationship, a woman who is stuck? And so she talked to them about like violence against women in war zones and she let them ask her questions, and you know, they would ask her, like, what do you think it feels like to be carrying the baby of somebody who raped you? Or what does it feel like to be disassociated from your own body? Or, you know, in the case of the character who, like, keeps trying to come back to Immortan Joe, what is it like to be attached to your perpetrator because you don't know any better, you know, because it's all you've had? And so she had them even do, like, writing exercises where they wrote letters to Immortan Joe to kind of create empathy for the complicated situation that they were in. And Mm -hmm. that's like even so I guess that's a case of George Miller being like, I am the director and I will hire people to do lights and I can like have somebody wonderfully give up their time to help me strengthen even this part of the story, because I know that I'm not the expert here, but it's important and I want to get it done. Right.
0: Well, don't you understand or not? Don't you understand? That seems very confrontational. I was like, I think I think you can understand that, especially for a movie like this, that lacks a lot of dialogue. You do need. To, like, show it on your face. Like, all that work. Like, that's that's a lot of work. Like, you know, writing letters and getting in the headspace of these characters. Um, What they were able to do was show that. Like, I think that these performances yeah. actually like are very that. layered. Yeah, you yeah, see it. You
1: see it in Charlize's eyes, especially. And you hear it, I think, even in how Tom Hardy grunts. How he's, like, animalistic more than human. Yeah, And... Even Morton Joe tried to do stuff like that, too. Apparently, like the actor um, who played him, who is, if you remember the first Mad Max, he's like the bad guy in that one. He's Toe Cutter. Uh, mm-hmm. His name is um, Hugh Keyes Baron. Toe Cutter dies in the first Mad Max. Spoiler alert. But like George Miller loved that actor. And he was like, well, times have changed. You're wearing a mask. I want to keep working with you again. But that actor, Hugh, who comes out of like Shakespeare... Um, And like serious theatrical training. He made all of the actors playing war boys call him daddy for the whole eight months that they were doing the film. Oh, wow. So they all called him daddy. Uh, If you weren't a war boy, you didn't have to call him daddy. But the war boys all had a gym that they were working out in and he put pictures of himself all over the gym. So he became kind of like a true big brother-esque figure to them where they were always looking at and thinking about their daddy.
0: Wow. I love that.
1: (laughs) I wonder how it would be if they rented him on the street today. Like, would you just sort of kick back into like daddy mode?
0: That's an interesting thing. I mean, you look i i love I love hearing about these things, and I also am like, oh my god, I would, I would be like so absolutely like I'd probably be like going nuts like on you know on set because I'm like, oh, I don't want to. This is driving me crazy. But I think all this stuff probably really helps. I mean, it helps the movie. I think it does help the movie. What do you think?
1: Well, I think you should call me daddy.
0: All right. I'll call you daddy. <laughs> so daddy, what do you think? Do you think daddy this will work? No, but I like, you know, I think it does. I, I think it does really help. Um, There is something really lived in the way that the, these, these men approach him and, you know, from blowing, you know, uh, dust on him to, uh, You know, there, there's a lot, there's a lot there that I feel like really feels fleshed out and we're not, it's not a movie where we're constantly telling you what you need to know. Like, and I think that that's, and again, like Inception, we're not, we're not overly explaining it. You'll get it. And if you don't get all the specifics of it, great. Who cares? You're not, it's not going to help you. It's not going to take away from understanding what you're watching, right? Like you may not know all the specifics, but when do we know all the specifics of anything? Like sometimes you go out to dinner with a couple and you're like, oh, I'm getting a dynamic here. I don't, you know, I don't know all the details of it, but I can pick up context clues. You know, that's <laughs> all we need.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's why maybe I'm a little bit nervous about there being a Furiosa sequel, if I'm going to be honest. is my first, A prequel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a prequel. Like a prequel is even worse to me because what's in my head is, oh, are we just going to have to see the story of how she lost her arm? I don't care. I don't like needing to know that this movie mm-hmm. doesn't think I need to know that. So why do I need a whole film explaining a thing that the first movie didn't think I need to know? Right. So if that is what the film is about, I'll be sad. But honestly, part of me is also feels like I should just trust George Miller that it will be about something completely different than that. Yeah. I just don't care. I don't want like the climactic moment of a Furiosa prequel, prequel to be her losing her arm. Because to me, that undercuts everything so great about this movie. I don't know what the white powder is that they're blowing all over Immortan Joe.
0: I just thought it was like, I thought it was just talc because, you know, he gets all sweaty in that suit.
1: Oh, do you think it is? I was wondering if it was like kind of some sort of numbing powder. When you think about the economics of what keeps the Citadel afloat, you know, they're not the bullet farmers. who That guy has that amazing, like, Lawrence of Arabia bullet headdress. Just Mm -hmm. like amazing costuming that Immortan Joe's money literally just comes from, like, milking women and selling lettuce. That he's, <laughs> like, built this whole empire on milking women and selling lettuce. I I don't know. It, I don't think I realized how much the milk was his product, that he was like, trading with the other countries, right. the other yeah. like little nation states. And then it becomes even more terrifying. Like, I heard a reading from Shirley's Throne where she said she decided that Furiosa Wasn't necessarily like taking the women away to be a hero, but because she knew it would be the number one thing that would make Immortan Joe lose his mind.
0: So she was just trying to get back at him.
1: That it was all, it was pure revenge for her, but then she was realizing maybe later that it wasn't.
0: But Hmm.
1: either way, I don't know. There's this thing that's on my mind a lot, like right now, like I've been thinking a lot about like generational feminism. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to join this group. Uh, there's a group here in L.A. that's 116 years old. It's called the Hollywood uh, Women's Club. Right. And they started existing in 1905. And I'm like finally joining them. And I'm very excited about oh, wow. this. I've been wanting to join this group forever because to me it is a bit of like generational feminism. Like I went to my first couple of meetings and there's like women there in their 80s and 90s that I'm not related to that I feel like I could learn from.
0: Right. You know,
1: and and I would like to, you know, have younger people come on and like kind of create like a woman's group again that is like really multi generational. Yeah. And to have that be here in the film that this isn't like I'm sick to death of feminist films that are like I'm just a woman who's like in my 20s or 30s who's hot as shit and shoots people like fuck right. that. You know, I'm just this one rogue girl who's not like other girls on my own blasting men like I don't care. But this movie is like generations of women helping each other. And having a part to play. So it's not all that one woman is an exception, but that together women are doing really interesting things. And to have a movie where like you're watching, have you, old women die in battle. Like what? Yeah. I don't, I'm trying to think of the other films where old women die in battle. Old women go down, guns blazing. And it's not like a comic effect, like a grandma rapping. Or like old woman with a gun getting shot. Like old women dying nobly in battle is it shouldn't be as staggering as it is, but I've, it it staggers me. Like when that is an image that I feel like is almost unique to this film.
0: Well, yeah, I think this movie is brutal and, and brutality knows no, no limits. Brutality affects children. It affects the elderly. It affects, you know, I think I think that we, not to drive it all back to COVID, but I think we all just lived in a in a world where we saw how everyone is, and still is, you know, susceptible to this virus. And well, I don't, I, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I'm this, I'm blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't make a difference. Even when an event like 9-11 happens, you know, you're saying like, Oh my god this well, well well there there must be something bigger here at play there's a conspiracy there's a something there because I can't even take in that we live in a world that is that tenuous that something so big could happen and we couldn't prevent it you know and I think that that often is the the biggest scariest wake up call like oh no no anyone can be affected by this everybody will be nobody you know children old young healthy frail Um, And that to me is, is uh, I think one of the cool, like not cool, but one of the most interesting things is we don't often see that even represented in film because it seems too brutal.
1: No, it's true. Like there's this old onion headline that runs through my head pretty much every day. Um, I think I can quote it. Amount of water man just used to wash dish to be prize of, of, hand-to-hand combat match in
2: 2065.
1: I think about that all the time. And, I mean, this is a movie that sets up a thing that I feel like we all know is coming. You know, like environmental disaster and water wars, and we're not doing anything about it. You know, to talk about your kind of analogy of seeing something happen that you weren't prepared for and how do you make a thing make sense. It's almost maddening that these movies have existed for, you know, what, gosh, 42 years now warning us about a type of future that is coming and we're still not doing anything about it?
0: No, because it doesn't affect us. And Look, we live in a society where we've seen this happen now so many times. Like, uh, guys, you got to get that vaccine. I had it. And now it's bad. Like, oh, so now since you had it, since you now you can say that we should get it because it affected you or like... My son is gay. So now I know that I should uh, fight for gay rights. Like, oh, well, like it's so. As the father of daughters. Right. Well, I mean, but, but I would even say that the father of daughters is at least whatever. But like, it's like, <laughs> to me, to me, it's like, I can now, I've, I've been against gay rights. And then my son is gay or my daughter is gay. And now I can say they're just like us. And it's like, well, yeah, no shit. But why does it have to happen to you? Like, I, you know, vaccines, fuck the vaccines. I got COVID. Guys, get the vaccine. I'm being serious. Like, well, why do we have, like, why? We live in a society where it's like, it won't happen to me. It won't happen to me. And then when when it does happen, I was like, well, now I'm going to be the soothsayer. Now I'm going to tell you, get your shit together. It's like like, I'm the expert now, man. Yeah, it's just just a weird, it's a weird thing that we, we consistently uh, do. And I think we see it a lot in, um. In politics, I think we see a lot in politics, like just like it was like when Lindsey Graham got COVID. He's like, well, I'm going to tell Trump like he should be pushing the vaccine. It's like, why now? Why wouldn't you believe this? Like it's uh, it just I mean, Ugh, it just makes what me, a blood bag. I mean, yeah, what a blood bag. But anyway, and by the way, we but what we're doing in this movie is we're taking the blood of somebody who is vital and using it to 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 keep non-vital people around there's such i mean there's so many things that i think that you can pull from politics and environmentalism from this it's you know i mean in a way we are reusing which is good um but uh but uh (laughs) but no reusable
1: refillable blood bag
0: yeah but to your your point blood blood bag but to your point look i don't know how different this movie would have been in um in story in 2003 um Because I feel like he probably had this idea. And and obviously the first Mad Max was already dealing with these issues. And he's telling the same story, same voice, same person. And no one's going to listen. And then eventually something terrible will happen. And then everyone will be like, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad he got to make this movie right the year that he did it. Because I'm, yes. I'm glad this movie didn't have to be made with Mel Gibson. I'd rather not have a Mel Gibson in this I movie. Think you're right. I also yeah, sure. don't, the idea of Mel Gibson being in like a feminist film is like insane. My mm-hmm. brain would explode. I do get the sense he was trying to get Mel Gibson out of it by like 2006. He was already like, when he was like, I. he seemed. I I feel like when he started to move it to like an anime creation, he was trying to just like get rid of Mel. And Mel you know, would be giving yeah. interviews in 2006 like, it won't exist if I'm not doing it. There's old like com- comments on Rotten Tomatoes, on an old Rotten Tomatoes article about like Mel Gibson saying that he wasn't going to do it. So it wasn't going to happen anymore. And people are like, well, you can't have a Forrest Gump 2 without Tom Hanks. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. OK. Um, he was considering Heath
0: Ledger for a while, but eh, Heath Ledger would have absolutely killed it. Oh, he would have been great. But I wonder, I mean, again, I think Tom Hardy might be the right man for the job. Um,
1: Tom Hardy wants to be a silent movie star more than anyone I've ever seen. Like, how happy would Tom Hardy be if he was a silent movie star who never had to talk? He doesn't like talking in movies. He always talks like a crazy person. He would rather like not move his lips ever and be hidden behind a mask. Like Tom Hardy should exist in 1919. He would have been the biggest thing ever.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's really interesting because I think they think you need somebody that wants to be quiet. Like I, I like like Heath Ledger to me.
1: Yeah, it would be getting Heath Ledger Joker or Heath Ledger Brokeback.
0: I don't think he seems as sunburnt, beaten down as. This character needs to be and obviously like he's amazing as a joker. He's amazing in everything that he does. But there is something about him. about
1: him in present tense.
0: Uh, well, I mean, look, you know, he like all well, his films are alive. Uh, but there is something about him that is too sweet.
1: Wait, do you know how Tom Hardy got famous?
0: How? I mean, I thought it was always from that one movie.
1: Oh, I have an internet clip to show you. Okay. Um, This is from 1998. Uh, This is Tom Hardy being on TV for, I believe, the first time ever on um, the British TV show Big Breakfast. They had a modeling contest. He won. He is a child and he's scrawny. Picture Tom Hardy, but scrawny with shoulders that kind of slope down like a pyramid with his hair held back in a headband. It was this like terrible chin fuzz on his chin. And then... And then listen to this amazing clip. Our last
2: male finalist from the London Heat. Please welcome Tom Hardy. Tom is a 22-year-old, 20-year-old Virgo. He's a drama student in London and says his acting heroes are Gary Oldman and Stephen Burkhoff. Tom would like to write and direct his own short films, and he says he loves Eddie Izzard but hates football. That's right. <laughs> okay, uh, Tracy. What's your question for Tom? A difficult one here, Tom. Who would be your ideal modelling partner? Christy Turlington and Kate Moss. Yeah. Together. Fox, together. <laughs> Foxes. Okay. Listen. That was uh, Tom Hardy, ladies and gentlemen, our last male finalist. How about that? Okay. Okay. Uh, will it be Michael? Ian from Manchester. Birmingham champ. I told. Bristol winner. James. Or Tom from London. Yasmin, the winner, please. It's Tom. It's Tom from Tom! London.
0: I get <laughs> it. I find get what, that
1: video. Please find that video if you I get what you're saying. Well.
0: Like, he is, he is, um, look, he's, he's very a attractive. Man. He's a beautiful man. I'm not saying that he's not a beautiful man, but I think there is something very hardened about how he is. And I think that there, it suits Mad Max better than potentially Heath Ledger. I don't know, but I know what hard I like. It's a very hard. I, I, I'm, why am I begrudging Heath Ledger? I, I, I'm a fan. I'm just saying I, I like this casting. I think this casting is really good. I, I would argue I think this casting is even better than uh, Mel Gibson.
1: I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and to that point about timing, like, I'm glad we don't get the 2003 Mel Gibson. And I'm glad this film didn't come out one year later when mm-hmm. I would have been forced to watch this in the context of Trump. Oh, I hate that I've even been saying that out loud. I don't want to accept that idea that we have to watch this in the context
0: of Trump. It's no, I don't like, think you have to. I think, no, you, I think, no. Yeah.
1: But, but what I'm saying is, like, post Trump, every movie became about Trump, even if it right. wasn't supposed to be about Trump. Mm-hmm. And this movie was never about him. And yes, it just is that fascism takes the same patterns, aspirational fascism yes. Yes. looks the same. And I am grateful that this movie will never have to be seen through his lens. Thank God. Thank yes. God! I'm glad. I want Mad Max to be free of him. I don't want any scent of him on this movie.
0: But I think again, just to pull it out, like he is someone who is ahead of his time, in the sense like, that he is Trump seeing. Trump or like, Miller? Uh, <laughs> uh, Do you think Trump, Trump is ahead of his time? No, for, no, like, I the no, I apocalypse. No, I, I like, no, I just oh. you know what I'm saying. I, I'm saying that like the Miller is saying things that we all know. It's it again. It, He's like,
1: saying truths.
0: He's saying truths, And it's like, it doesn't make a difference who it is. I think that's why this movie is universal. It's why I can travel around the world because it's not specific to the United States. It's specific to, you know, the UN Council. And this year goes, we have to fix this. This could be for China. This could be for anywhere. Like it's, you know, we're living more and more in a world where, um, you know, people who have... You know, I, I think there's a world in which, you know, uh, industrialists become our leaders. Like, right, like you can you you could basically have billionaires to start to run the show. And I think they're trying to in certain ways. Um, anyway, not to get down in this whole rabbit hole. But uh, <laughs> I like but, that
1: rabbit hole. But that's a, a rabbit hole for another day.
0: Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is, yes, Tom Hardy is an incredibly sexy, attractive man. Heath Ledger is an amazing actor. But I do believe the grunts and groans and the is a really beautiful casting for this. I think that um I'm glad that we don't have Mel Gibson in this because I also think that Mel Gibson would take on a whole other role as far as how he is um in pop culture. You know, like, could we look at this movie and, you know, I don't think he is able, I, I think he's come back ish, like not the same way. Like if Mel Gibson never had his multiple issues, um, you know, he would still be an actor. I think that would be, churning out some really good stuff because i think mel gibson actually is a very good actor um uh and i think that if he was still beloved we might see a better version of him but i don't want to i don't know i don't know what i'm saying i'm all over the place i'm all over the place now yeah that
1: he's a bad dude and he would bring a baggage to this that it doesn't deserve yes or I'm they saying would. that, and I'm making you
0: agree No, I'm agreeing with it, too. Look, when I went to a basketball game just about two years ago, uh, Mel Gibson was in the crowd. The camera went to him, and the entire crowd booed, right? Really? And, oh, yeah, and then he like started making funny faces, like, oh, I'm in on this bit, like this bit is going on. So it's hard to have a hero, especially by these moments, and I think this movie is a harsher version than the other Mad Maxes. I think the the original Mad Max, like the first uh, the first one, the Road Warrior, is the yeah. best. Like that is the the, the Mel yeah. Gibson that we're kind of capturing here. You know, Beyond the Thunderdome is a little bit different. Uh, that's like I think the most Hollywood version of it, but it's not like it's not Road Warrior or Mad Max. It's it's a it's a whole different thing.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, uh, his persona is still okay for those movies that already exist because that it it does capture something I think essential yeah. about him. That Mad Max is selfish. This Mad Max is lonely and can't be another way. And there's, a, there's such a difference there. Yeah. Like this Mad Max, to me, like the most touching moment in this film is when um, Mad Max is trying to take a shot at that car in the dark. And he keeps missing and mm-hmm. Furiosa comes up behind him and she takes the gun and she makes the shot. And what I appreciate about how it's done is it's not that she takes the shot. And says something like "girls can do anything," or right. you know, she doesn't make a big deal of it. She doesn't even take the gun from him. No, you know, he looks at her. She maybe makes knows him death. she's better at it. It yeah. gives her the gun, and to me, that's where I want to go with you know having heroes be of all genders in films. Mm-hmm. Not like I got to make a point with this; just that it is the right. point, and that it, it's I know that you're better at this, and you're better at this, and this is what we do.
0: Let's not just check the boxes. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously we had a lot of things to say about this movie, a lot of positive things. But as always, we've seen it happen literally in almost every show. I'm sure people did not like this film. And I'm still kind of in shock that this movie was not such a big blockbuster. So I am curious to see what the complaints were, or at least somebody's complaint was about this film.
1: Fair enough. Well, most people really, really love this movie. Critics really, really love this movie, with one exception. Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle. Mm. This is what he writes. All this wit and effort and occasional beauty is in the service of a movie that is little more than a two hour chase scene. One that seems founded on the assumption that if you show one set of people chasing another, that's enough to get an audience excited. Oh no, let's hope they don't get caught! Furiosa, Max, and the young ladies are fleeing. The king's army is chasing and everything else is a series of variations. There's some welcome unintended comedy as when the women playing the king, the king's five wives attempt to act. They seem at a loss how to play women who have spent their entire lives in medieval style slavery, but apparently they'd be all like really bummed out about it. Yet, in a way, the quality of Theron's performance almost makes matters worse, making the rest of the barren emotional landscape stand out in sharper relief, as when she walks into the sand, drops to her knees, and screams in anguish. She can scream all she likes, but she cannot scream her way into a better film. The big screen might as well be a computer screen, with nothing real or real looking on it, and yet over the soundtrack come the horns. You know those horns, the ones heard in all action movies. The sincere horns of truth. The horns of ultimate triumph. The horns that say something grand and important is happening. But it's not. Really, it's just not.
0: I mean, wow. Uh, He's
1: talking about the Inception horns, don't you think? Is he talking about Brom? I mean, you know, I don't
0: even really remember the Inception horns in this. But I will say that, you know, I think when you can get in a bad way, there are certain films that, like, once you don't buy in, you're never going to buy in. And it felt like every part of this... This person just did not buy in, and I've been in those moments I can respect uh, not liking something and then finding everything you watch stupid because everything that we do enjoy ultimately is stupid, right? We're watching like it is like, unless, no, I think honestly, like, if you were to break <laughs> down any movie, it's ultimately kind of stupid if you just look at it like that, yeah, it's stupid, but. Uh, but, Hold on, I yeah. really
1: want to apply this to things, but then okay, I'll just go derail ahead. this entire No, right, right. let's
0: see. Like, I mean, look, uh, any, all right, so pick any movie. I'll show you how it's stupid. Okay. Um, Not a documentary. Nomadland. Nomadland. Okay, this woman running around <laughs> in her stupid trailer, like okay, and and, and it's like and these non actors in this thing, it's like okay, sure. What is it, a documentary what? or is it like a real thing? And and I mean, is it like is it that bad? I mean, what what are we watching? You're watching an infomercial for like how to live in the land, or are we watching a movie? Wait, this
1: is a really fun game. Can yeah, we keep give, doing yeah, give this? me another one. Okay, um, the Avengers.
0: I mean, Amy, Avengers is the easiest one. It's like, oh, stupid costumes, bad effects. It's like, why do I care? This is nothing that could happen in the real world. It's like it's just quips and explosions. And oh, yeah, they kill a guy. Big deal. I mean, you know, if we're really talking about uh, great cinema, I don't think that uh, like Joss Whedon is going to be at the front of that discussion.
1: Oh, Paul, do you know how long I've waited to hear you say those words? Uh, this is my, like, you're outside my window with a boombox moment. I also oh, don't like, just... I also
0: don't like the Avengers, <laughs> but for different reasons. Uh...
1: <laughs> okay, fine. I hear your point. Well, that is what Mick LaSalle said about Mad Max. And I disagree, too. I mean, I think he is being very harsh on the other actresses. I, I, I should say Abby Lee, who plays one of the enslaved women, I think is... A great, as yet not tapped as much as I want her to be, talent. Mm. you know, she's like the tall one. She plays the dag. I love her. Like, she was the only good thing I liked in Neon Demon. She's the best part of old. She is a very special, completely, you know, unusual looking and acting performer. She just. She, I don't know, she has this wavelength that she brings to things. I adore her. So anybody who disses on Abby Lee, I will arm wrestle.
0: Oh, I like it. I thought originally you were uh, just trying to get uh, some props for that woman, Abby Lee Miller, who runs that uh, that reality show about uh, kids dancing.
1: I don't know what you talk about. I'm classy.
0: Joe jo- Siwa started there, right? Is that where Jojo jo Siwa started? What? you really? Lee Miller, yeah.
1: I, w- I wouldn't know. I'm a serious All
0: writer. right. Oh, there you go. Um, all right. Well, Amy, uh, we have ended our blockbuster series, and now we enter into the world of horror. Uh, and we have a great lineup. And um, this one is going to be a, a very abrupt change of pace uh, because we've been going from people-pleasing movies to movies that are going to scare you and gross you out. I mean this is a this list is I'm I'm excited about this list of movies we have in front of us.
1: Me too. I mean horror is about getting you to reach into deep untapped emotions that are bigger than like yay. The emotion of every Avengers movie. Uh, so I'm very excited to get into a wicked, wicked, wicked season with you. But first, next week, we are doing something very important. We are going to take stock of everything that has come to pass in the last year of doing this podcast of season two. And we are going to pick our favorites. We are going to decide... I know bigger than favorite. Favorite isn't the right word, because you, even if I might love something, that doesn't mean it's going to space. And that will be the hardest part of next week's conversation.
0: So, Amy, I'm going to get out my list. I'm going to look at this and I'm going to really try to uh, figure this one out. I mean, I'm nervous. This is going to be a very intense discussion, but I think it will be worthwhile. I hope everybody makes their lists with us. Uh, Josh, Devin. I would like to hear your list as well, like what you'd like to to keep from the last Mm -hmm. year so. And if you want to look at the 40 that are on our list, just go to UnspooledPod.com. UnspooledPod.com, you can see the list of 40 there that we are working with and adding to.
1: All right, here we go. And I wonder if any of those are going to come off if we think we've found better replacements. This is our horror film. Anything can go, man.
0: I love it. I cannot wait. All right, we'll see you next week, Amy.